story of wine in South America is a, is a very interesting one. Grapes are not native to the continent. Um, grapes were brought down, came in in two ways, um, both through uh, the Spanish. The first was obviously um, not as pleasant. That was uh, when the conquistadors found themselves on their way down from what we now know of as sort of Mexico and, and California, but mostly Mexico and, and, and basically conquered uh, Central and South America. You're listening to Everyday Food and Wine, the show about innovators, creators, and experts in the fields of food and wine. I'm Sarah Faraday, and on today's show, I sit down and speak with Evan Goldstein. Evan is one of the nation's most prolific food and wine experts. His food and wine career started at the age of 19 in the kitchens of some of the most esteemed restaurants in Napa Valley. Evan became the eighth American and youngest ever at the time to pass the prestigious Master Sommelier examination. Since 1990, Evan has created education programs, wine training, and service hospitality schools, and he continues to train and examine candidates for the Court of Master Sommeliers as a founding board member. Evan, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be with you and share whatever it is that uh, you'd like to talk about. Absolutely. So I've talked with a few master sums before, and many of them didn't get into wine until later on in life. But that's not the case for you. You've been immersed in the food and wine culture since you were very young. Can you share how that impacted your wine journey? Oh, very much so. No, I was lucky in the sense that, uh, to your point, um, I grew up in a wine and food friendly household. Um, My mother as uh, some of your listeners may know, is uh, Chef Joyce Goldstein, um, operated and owned Square One restaurant here in San Francisco for many years, um, was responsible for running the upstairs uh, cafe at Chez East for many years prior to that. And then long before that, she was in San Francisco, aside from being my mom, she also owned and operated the California Street Cooking School uh, in Pacific Heights, which was opened in the mid-60s. And along with um, a gentleman by the name of Jack Lirio down in Los Angeles was one of the first two cooking schools in the state of California, uh, going back decades and decades and decades. And as one can imagine, um, you know, when you have a a mother who's a cooking teacher, you got tested on recipes, you ate well at home, um, all sorts of different things. And um, I also probably, unlike most of my peers at the time, when I would go to... um, break after school, a lot of them would, um, I guess, go to, you know, play or go to the park and do stuff like that. I would beeline down from school to the cooking school and prep and help like that. So I was wielding a knife and uh, flipping crepes at the uh, ripe young age of 12 years old. And that clearly set my path. Uh, Food's always been important to me. Wine was part of our household. It was part of our table. Uh, My parents had a wine cellar. When I was very young, um, and like so many inquisitive young men, you know, would pop my head in from time to time, pull the bottles out, look at the labels, just thought that was the coolest thing of all. And um, when I was growing up in school, uh, when I hit sort of my uh, teenage years, statute of limitations now being over, of course, um, if my grades were good, uh, I had the, uh, the old, what the Europeans would refer to as coloring your water, a little bit of wine diluted with water. As I got older, that diluted water turned into wine, and it was very much uh, part of our household. 
That's amazing. What a great childhood. You were the eighth master sommelier and the youngest to do that at the time. How did becoming a master sommelier change your life at such a young age? Because how old were you when you, when you got your master? You were very uh, young. Just 26. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How did that how did that change your life at such a young age, already having been involved in the food culture and wine? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting, Sarah. At that point in time, I you know the Square One was open, and, and I was working there, and um, you know had had decided that having a wine focus and a wine destination purview was going to be part of our DNA. Uh, we took the opportunity, you know, coming from obviously a, a very culinary and enocentric culture at Chez Panisse and, and moved it into San Francisco. Um, I put the wine list together. That was sort of my goal, raison d'etre, and uh, being sort of the uh, child of a very a, type A driven, needs to know it all, wants to know it all mother and ditto. My um, late uh, father was an architect. I sort of fell out of the same um, working style and just sort of immersed myself in wine. The beauty of being a buyer, as many of your listeners surely know, is that the, you know, the world comes to you. You don't go to it. The world dumps as much knowledge as you're willing to seep up. And over the span of several years, of course, you become an expert di- by default on that. About three years into Square One's existence, um, I uh, got a call that there was this uh, program um, happening called the Court of Master Sommeliers. They were offering their first ever course in the United States. Uh, and that would be held concurrently with the Monterey Wine Festival and sponsored by the National Restaurant Association. Uh, and that was in March of that year. I was one of 20 people invited into that particular uh, class. Got down there, a good friend of mine, fellow Master Sommelier, Madeline Trafon, who was the uh, fifth master sommelier or sixth master sommelier and the first one to pass on American soil and second woman ever, I might add, uh, is a dear friend of mine. And we sort of uh, agreed that we would go together. And if we hated it, we would walk. Uh, little <laughs> did we know it would become something that was so vital to our respective lives. Um, and then, you know, to make a long story short of that initial 20-ish people, four of us passed the quote-unquote course, that was what we refer to as the third level advanced course today. There was no level two back then, no level one back then. And then the four of us were asked to come back and take the master sommelier exam the next morning because all of the examiners had to go back to the United Kingdom on a flight that following evening. So I literally, from Monterey, California, drove home, came back to work, closed the restaurant, got a few hours sleep, drove back to Monterey, uh, took my master sommelier examination, passed two parts, uh, those being uh, theory and tasting, went over to the UK in the fall in October and passed my service portion at that point in time, along with my uh, colleague and good friend Nuncio Aliotto, also of San Francisco, uh, became the seventh and eighth uh, master sommeliers respectively. But to answer your question about how did it quote unquote change your life? Well, back then there weren't that many of us, so we really didn't know what it was going to be like. Um, I think it changed most vividly to me in that the um, the cascade of people who would reach out to me and the cascade of people who would call on me as the buyer uh, of the wine program changed. No longer was it okay for a salesperson to call. The principals or owners came in. No longer was it important for... Um, you know, a district manager to go there, but the head of the distributorship would come in. So all of those things um, changed. Obviously, you realize that your um, your value to them and your place in the uh, 
uh, system, if you will, had changed a bit. And then I got a lot of, you know, the phone started ringing for speaking engagements and things like that. And um, I just sort of pursued from there. In terms of, you know, did I know more the day after than I did the day before, which is sort of the perennial uh, MS question? The answer is, of course not. Um, but the, your perspective on the world changed because the world changed the way they looked at you. Especially at such a young age, how did you, I mean, it sounds like you had a lot of responsibility from the time that you were very young, but did it seem like a a lot to handle just being 26? I I mean, I I think I was, uh, you know, I I really didn't have uh, a strong understanding of public relations at that point in time. I was, you know, my public relations was my dining room and my customers. Um, And so dealing with that element of things and just the sheer volume, you know, more people coming in all the time, the phone ringing for interviews and stuff like that. I think that was um, different. You know, I would I would be lying to you if I didn't say it was probably a little overwhelming initially. But uh, like anything else in life, you you learn how to deal. But it was uh, it was curious, to say the least. That was interesting. We were doing some remodeling here at our home um, about a year ago. And I, you know, I was going through some cupboards and stuff like that and actually found uh, paperwork and articles and all of those things from back then. And it was sort of a trip to the Wayback Machine to realize how fast and furious it came and, you know, look at your journey um, some, you know, now 30 something years later and look at where you are now. Definitely nostalgic. So when you first got invited by the, the quartermaster, did you have any idea what you were getting into? Um, very little, you know, there was not a lot of, of, uh, of information back then. Remember that from the standpoint of, uh, geez, social media and the internet and email, we were in the very initial stages. I mean, floppy disks were actually floppy disks back then. And people wrote letters and used thermal paper fax machines. So the transfer of information was relatively slow. Um, I do know that I had a small inkling because, uh, probably about eight or 10 months prior to that, I was invited to a tasting by um, an importer here in San Francisco and asked to come to taste, uh, you know, all of the offerings of a particular uh, producer in Chablis whose wines I was a big fan of. Little did I know at the time I accepted the invitation that there was only one other uh, sommelier buyer who had been invited to that tasting, and that was um, uh, Fred Dame, one of the earliest master sommeliers in uh uh, the United States, certainly in American lore these days, as far as master sommeliers go. And yeah. um, he had just passed his MS exam in London several weeks prior. And um, needless to say, with the questions that I asked and that the importer asked, the uh, agenda of the tasting got shanghaied, if you will, and it really turned into what was passing the MS like and, and everything there. So I did have a basic sense of the structure of the program, of how there were three different levels and and all of that. Um, I had no understanding of the level of depth of it. I had no understanding of the level of what it would actually be like in real time to take the examination. You know, it's one thing to say 25 minutes, six wines, four minutes and 10 seconds of wine, and another thing to do it. Um, So in that regard, I I had enough information to be dangerous was probably uh, the best way of putting it, Sarah. But no, I didn't really know what I was getting into. (laughs) That's incredible. So I've asked this to several other wine experts, and I'm always curious, you know, you grew up with this incredible cellar, you had, you know, access to wine at such a young age. And was there a bottle of wine that really like lit the fire and passion to pursue a career in wine? And if so, do you do you remember what that bottle was? 
Uh, well, I, the answer is not only do I remember what that bottle was, I'm looking up to my right and on my plate shelf right now, and I can see the bottle along the de- with the other dead soldiers that uh, line the, uh, the walls of my uh, dining room. Um, I will give you the answer, though, that's probably, and it's not to brag, but I think it really just gives you more perspective on the place that I was coming from uh, versus everybody else. So, you know, you ask most people that and you're going to get answers as silly as, you know, Matus and Boone's Farm to, you know, I had a killer bottle of a, of a Napa Valley Cabernet or something like that, or if there it's on the top end. But usually they're very um, simple wines, but, you know, compared to the uh, everyday pedestrian things people were drinking, they were drinking, that was sort of really an aha moment for them. My bottle happened to be uh, a bottle of 1943 uh, Domaine de la Romane Conti uh, Richbourg, um, which is, of course, a stunning wine, um, a collectible wine, a wine that was brought out for a special occasion being, you know, an end of the year holiday at my house. And, you know, although I'd been drinking wine, you know, again, as I alluded to earlier, that my wine made me actually stop take pause and realize that, you know, a a simple glass of liquid could transform your entire experience, make your meal taste that much better. And, you know, when you looked into it even deeper, you know, think about what was going on in Burgundy in 1943. I mean, there's that living history element of it that really brings the bottle to life. Um, You know, some in that case, probably, you know, 20 something, 30 something years later. Uh, so it, 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 that was it for me. And I haven't looked back since. <laughs> That's incredible. So you were literally transported through a glass of wine. Yep. That's incredible. So can you tell me about Master of the World and, and what was your inspiration behind the concept to talk about what it is and where the idea came from? Yeah. The Master of the World uh, was a, um, a, a project that sort of uh, happened spontaneously and serendipitously. Uh, the concept for those people who are who are not going to be aware of it, and most of you are not, we haven't done a big PR push on it yet. That's forthcoming. Uh, was a a to create a, a blind tasting opportunity that you could do in the privacy of your own home, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, and it happened. Uh, by accident. I happened to be in uh, southern Brazil leading a group of sommeliers across the Setagaucha, uh, the primary region of Brazil. And one of the sommeliers who I was with, uh, she was studying for her advanced examination and was particularly uptight about her tasting. And she had literally carried down with her uh, a backpack, if you will, full of all these funny little mixed and matched 50 milliliter bottles all of which were refilled with wine, tagged with a piece of masking tape and with a code on them. And um, every morning I would get up before the group was because I needed to make sure the day was well planned. The buses showed up, the wineries were ready for us, etc. And she would get up early because before we took off on our first um, visit, she wanted to make sure she got a round of tasting in. So we would have breakfast probably a good hour or so before everybody else got down there. I would eat, she would eat. I would then get on, you know, get all by merry way, and she would excuse herself, move to another table, secure six wine glasses, and pull six of these little bottles, mix-matched bottles. You know, one looked like it used to be for Kahlua, one looked like it was for Beefeater, one looked like it was for Stoli, etc. So they didn't, you know, there was no rhyme or reason to them, but they were all coated. She would she would open them. You know, obviously they'd been reused before, but, you know, she'd, she'd open them. She poured the wines in, which had been uh, chosen for her by a friend of hers, and uh, would set a little stopwatch out, taste these wines in 25 minutes, and then immediately text her friend and see how she did. Well, the first day I thought it was sort of ingenious. The second and third days I thought it was cool. But by, you know, day seven or eight, I said, gosh, you know, in the, uh, 
you know, since these wines were um, bottled, you know, number one, you know, I thought to myself, I wonder if they're really great examples, archetypal examples of what they're supposed to be. I wonder how they're handling, you know, the, the travel and the weather in Brazil and all of that. And I wonder if the integrity of the wines over the course of the week is is clearly changing. And, you know, I asked her about that and she said, obviously it was, and as the week was going on, got more and more difficult to be able to do this. But the germ of that idea stayed in my head. And I got back home. I talked to uh, my wife to make sure I wasn't crazy. She thought it was a terrific idea. I talked to my business partner about, could we actually do it? She said she needed to think about it, but she came around and said, no, I think it's a very viable idea too. And then it took us literally about five and a half years to go through the process of, of coming to market. And Sarah, what that means is there's lots of, you know, there's lots of elements to this, you know, element number one, obviously, as we've sort of alluded to is the technology. How do you take a wine out of a 750 milliliter bottle and move it anaerobically into a smaller size bottle and close it in the absence of oxygen so that, you know, six months or a year later, the integrity of the wine is essentially as good as it was the day that you popped the cork on it. That took us two or three rounds, multiple technologies until we got to a system that we um, we liked. And we would track the wines by literally keeping X number of 187 milliliter bottles and then testing them um, every so, every sub so number of months against the 750 milliliter bottle and look for the key metrics that would make a winemaker shudder if they saw too much movement there. Things like dissolved oxygen, things like free SO2, things like ABV, things like volatile and total acidity, things like that, that if the numbers are fluctuating too much, you know that the integrity of your seal um, isn't good and that the wine is, you know, oxidizing and going downhill quickly. Well, we finally settled in on one system, which is the system we're using today. And literally, um, you know, thousands of kits later, it, it's holding up fine. That was step one. Step two no was under step. no small fee. Step two was saying, okay, well, how do I do this? Well, it's easy, you know, to get the licensing together to uh, to be able to purchase the wines, um, getting the licensing get together for the range of shipping uh, needs that you want to do. But what it doesn't t tell you is after you've bought that wine wholesale, well, it's not just as simple as popping a cork and rebottling it. You know, the winery needs to sign off on you doing that. So we literally had to seek legalese assistance in securing language that would allow for wineries to sign off on uh agreements that would give us permission to rebottle their wines um, and repackage them and remarket them as part of these master the world kits. Uh, because the last thing you want is to do that. And for whatever reason, the winery gets a hold of you and says either A, uh, I never gave you permission to do that. B, um, you know, I, I tasted the wine and I don't like it and I'm ceasing and desisting you and, and, and causing just an absolute crisis that you didn't need to do. So literally every wine that we use under the Master of the World label has not only been tasted and gridded by three master sommeliers who agree that it's an archetypal example of what it is, but then I subsequently reach out to each and every winery and make sure that they're okay with it, receive a e-signed uh, agreement saying that we have permission, get the labels that have approved, been approved by the TTB because I need them for my own colas and stuff like that, et cetera, et cetera. So that's step number two. And then step number three, as I'm sure you're, um, you're reasonably well aware, you're a very smart person in this regard. Every state that you want to have business in, you have to have filings for that state. 
you know, and that could be with the alcohol board, that could be with the taxation board, could be both, it could be uh, all of that. So to be completely ready to go in all three of those categories took us about five and a half years. And so then we soft launched uh, with our first shipments in January of this year. We've sent out now five different kits. We've run a couple of uh, B2B projects of which those are growing under the current um, COVID-19 realities in which we're living. And, um, you know, our, our soft launch got a little harder and faster than we wanted it, but we've managed to keep up the pace, um, hire appropriately, uh, get the wines there. And as we get a critical mass of wineries that have signed off with us, you know, more and more wineries are like, well, they're all doing it. Why aren't we doing it? Um, so we've only had just a very small number of wineries that have effectively said, no, we're not interested. And frankly, we've had wineries that have proactively reached out to us to see how they can be involved. I'm sure. Yeah, I was going to ask if you received a lot of pushback from the wineries just in in moving it from their bottles into yours with the labeling. Yeah, you know, I I, I would say, you know, we're working now probably with, God, uh, close to 100 or so wineries across probably a range of 10 or so countries. I think we've had less than less than a dozen no's. I'm not surprised. And like it, like you said, people are now reaching out to you about this, but you just launched and it not to make light of a terrible situation, everything going on with COVID-19. But I want to ask, how has COVID impacted this new venture? Because you just launched in January and this was yeah. after five and a half years. So it was just ready at the perfect time. I know wine consumption is significantly increased. So is that inf- reflecting in your, your wine kits, even though you're- yeah, sir, that, No, it's a great question, sir. And I think it's, I think it's, the answer is yes, yes, and yes. It's definitely gone up. I think a couple of things have sort of um, conflated all at the same time. Number one, you have professionals who um, A, have time on their hands B, have an interest in tasting, but C, because of the world in which we live in, there are no master classes that they can attend. There are no tastings and walkarounds they can go taste at, et cetera. So how do you replicate broad tasting uh, opportunities in the privacy of your own home? Well, there's a number of wine clubs and stuff out there, uh, but many of those require full bottles. And um, if they are in smaller size portions, oftentimes they're done with sort of... Um, how should I say this, bulk wines, which have been rebottled and repackaged and things like that. But, you know, we're the only uh, game out there that is um, doing what we're doing in the legally compliant way with the permissions from the wineries, et cetera, um, that is using fine wine. The fine wines have been um, tendered by myself, signed off on by uh, not one, not two, but three master sommeliers who all agree that they are the right wine. So that for students, be they master of wine students, WSET students, um, court of master sommelier students who are looking at honing their tasting skills, either a blind or simply being assured that the wines that they are tasting are in fact, archetypal examples of what they are. We provide a great vehicle for them to be able to do that. So we've got, you know, obviously a strong professional uh, audience that is, that is out there and, uh, subscribing to us, um, attending our webinars, which we run one monthly, uh, managed by three master sommeliers who talk about, you know, when the wines are revealed, what would 
you know, what would take you there? How could you identify those things like that? So that's been really powerful. Um, but consumers as well, too, we're getting an increasingly stronger consumer thing. I mean, not every Tom, Dick and Jane in, is going to be interested, but the ones who are more those sort of, I guess you'd call them passionate amateurs who want to grow their discernment and expand their palate. Uh, they've been really interested in that. And what's interesting in a sort of side um, uh finding that we that we've discovered along the way simply because we get so much email back and forth is there are a lot of people that are getting it they're getting their kit of six wines in blind bottles they'll sit down they'll prepare their dinner you know they'll crack open a bottle it's obviously sleeved uh, so it's a blind tasting they'll pour a glass for you know two of them or three of them if they're you know not drinking that much wine and then they can enjoy the wine then they can go online and find out what the wine was and they can do it in a very you know people are, you know, obviously moderation is an important thing for people too um, and so they can literally have six different wines or uh, over over six different days or try two wines each over three days and get a good learning experience with six different wines there so we're really tracking um, and, and and getting traction with consumers in that regard and then third, you know, we've started to get a lot of inquiry, as I said before, on the B2B side. So, you know, not only are we doing customized kits for geographical areas, uh, we did one earlier this year for a Portuguese wine region. We, we're packaging one right now uh, for the country of Chile. But we're also doing um, other com other uh, commercially viable things. Um, our largest client uh, of these projects right now is uh, a, a wonderful group and wonderful organization called the Napa Valley Wine Academy. And they are the largest provider of WSET training in the United States, uh, primarily uh, historically, both in classroom and online. But as you can imagine, with COVID-19, all of their classes have moved into an online format. And for their WSET Level 2 and WSET Level 3 classes, we had worked with them pre-COVID on coming up with uh, kits that they could, uh, people could buy optionally to accompany their tasting experiences. Because obviously in an online space, you're tasting by yourself or with somebody else and you're in a different part of the world and you're not getting the luxury of a curated sec, you know, sextet of wines, uh, which is being taught to you in person by a teacher, but you've got to sort of replicate this in an online environment. And what they were finding was that um, oftentimes the scores uh, between the people who were taking the classes live and then the exam live versus the people who were taking the classes remotely and the exams live were not um, tracking the same and that there were people clearly um, on their own self path were having a harder time both locating wines that meet met the criterion that the um, WSET training required but then obviously finding good examples of them in places where your choice is more challenged than otherwise so that went from an optional to a mandatory and obviously our business you know picked up as, and their business picked up within the online thing too. So people tasting at home and people taste changing their tasting, training and examining habits at home have uh, provided literally, um, you know, the absolute perfect storm in a good way uh, for uh, Master the World to take off. I think that's incredible. I was actually, I interview uh, Chris Ogenfuss on the podcast and he was talking about having to completely change the business model, but they were, they were getting so much demand for, you know, it really just opens it up to so many more people being able to, to take their W set or their, uh, their uh, did you say they were also offering the, um, the sommelier certification as well, or is it just W set? I can't no, remember. they just do, they just do W set. They, they assist people in, um, 
diploma study and diploma training. In fact, we're talking with them about, you know, the very precursors about putting some kits together that will assist people who are in fact studying for their diploma. But at this point in time, we're doing WSET 2, WSET 3, um, quite possibly a WSET 1 will be coming down the pipeline soon, but then the whole um, MW thing after that. Would, would be different. You know, so much of the hard examination thing, and, you know, obviously I've had chats with my own Court of Master Sommelier's organization too. You know, it's one thing to be tasting and practicing its home, and it's another thing to be administering examinations remotely. And I don't think anybody is quite there yet. Um, so we're all kind of uh, studying that. As you probably um, imagine, we're all learning something a little bit more, exploring a little bit more every day. But I think to your point and to uh, Chris's point as well, too, you know, this in-home stuff is going to be with us for a long time. You know, the realities of classroom teaching with social distancing and uh, enclosed spaces and all of the stuff that we, you know, took for granted for decades and decades is challenged. And is, um, you know, I live in San Francisco and literally as of an hour before you and I started chatting, um, our mayor just literally hit pause on all of these businesses she was planning on reopening on Monday, simply because California's numbers, as I'm sure you know, are spiking uh, out there too, along with other states. And, you know, we're, we're uh, double dipping back into uh, some pretty hard times. So it's going to be a while before uh, we get back to normal. And um, until then, um, online uh, education, online tastings, online webinars, and certainly um, elements and things like Master the World will become more uh, part of the vernacular, I believe, for people who are interested in learning about wine. What a great time. What, By the way, what foresight that you had to create this business then and then the fact that it's just now at its launching point now, I think is incredible. I don't believe in coincidences, so I think that that's, that's pretty phenomenal. I want to ask you a couple more questions about the like actually sourcing the wines, if you don't sure. mind. <laughs> no, uh, no problem. So- so my husband and I do a, a lot of blind taste testing frequently, and we found out that some of the more commercialized wines tend to feel a little manufactured, like chemically or being acidified, and they don't quite represent the true characteristics of certain wines. So uh, first, is it is it common for more mass-produced wines? And if so, how do you avoid that? And I know you and three other masters are going through it, but how, how are you choosing the wines that you're sourcing for your kids? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question, Sarah. You know, I, I, I put my my, my restaurant buyer hat back on with a little bit of a uh, tip of said hat to some of my friends who buy for um, big accounts and airlines and things like that. And that what I do is I have a group of uh, distributors and importers who I work with. And what I simply do is I put out tenders. So what I say is, you know, I'll send out an email. Um, a, you know, we're obviously still young, but the plan is to do this on a quarterly basis. And I'll put out a tender and say, here are the following 14, 18 categories that we're going to be tasting against uh, over time. And it might be, you know, uh, Chilean Carmenere. It might be uh, Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc. It might be Russian River Pinot Noir. It could be um, a Hungarian Ferment or whatever. And then we put it out there. They, the, the importers and distributors know the price ranges that we work in. You know, we want to provide wines that are, like I said, um, archetypal examples of what they are. Those wines are not cheap to do, but we do have a certain cost of goods that we need to work in in order to make the whole business uh, proposition viable. They then submit um, samples of the wines that they feel um would make sense. I triage their list of offerings. I reject some, 
push back on others, actually be convinced here, ask about others that they didn't submit to come up with uh, a grouping of wines that we will then organize, catalog, and uh, sit down and taste over, obviously, the span of multiple days uh, to do so. And what we do is we go through individual flights of wines, you know, could be a a flight as small as, say, seven or eight, but it might be literally, you know, uh, three flights of 12 and a particular more popular varietal. And then we do what they do in wine judging. So we go through an initial round of eliminate, retain, where we basically say yes, yes, no, no, yes, yes, no. And then all the wines that we believe are yeses, uh, we then go back in and we grid them, which is to say we, we, we look at them, we smell them, we taste them. We, uh, we work through their structure, uh, et cetera. And then obviously, you know, um, the deduction is pretty straightforward because the wine's really good examples. And I then carry that out in an online thing. And we ensure that those wines are, when you're sitting on the other side of the table and you don't know what that wine is, a really good example of what it is. Now, to your point, and without being, you know, negative or critical of, of so many of the wines that are, you know, for lack of better words, mass produced out there, well, a lot of those wines are simply not going to be um, absolutely uh, knee-jerk identifiable as to what they are. I mean, we have some wines that we've used over time that, that I would consider to be larger producers, but, you know, we do probably tend to focus in on more domain and estate bottled wines rather than large branded wines. Uh, But once again, the uh, primary and absolute uh, driving criteria is, you know, is the wine scream of exactly what it is? And then once we do that, will the winery give us permission to rebottle and remarket the wines as master the world? And then together, you know, once you've gone through that process, we then assemble the kits you know, with the uh, with an eye in mind of trying to make them interesting, uh, uniformly diverse, both by geographies and grapes, um, tipping our hats to people who we do know are studying uh, so that the wines are not going to be weird, completely esoteric, crazy, you know, stuff that no one will ever be examined on, much less nobody will be able to find. But we do also take our, our uh, role seriously in that we're not purely um, a vehicle and an instrument to teach people how to train to take a test, but rather we're also growing people's discernment in wines. So, you know, you will find wines in our kits, um, you know, not six out of six, but one here and there that are important wines, but may not necessarily be, you know, more classic wines in terms of uh, testing, but nevertheless, wines that either I believe will be on tests at some point in time, or I simply think that you as an educated uh, adventurous wine drinker would want to know about. I love that. Uh, so it, what is your business model? Is it for like for the general consumers who aren't going through a W set? Is it a monthly subscription model or what does that look like? Yeah. So, so right now, you know, we, we, we only have, you know, we're, we're very much in our, our, our crawling stages. So we have, uh, uh, the, our typical kit is a monthly subscription kit, and it goes out uh, in the middle of each month. We, we hold uh, a webinar on it, uh, literally the week thereafter, but it comes out weekly. People can either subscribe to, um, you know, on a one-off, it's $90, which includes the kit and shipping, obviously, um, and all the tax stuff is there. And then we have a recurring monthly, which takes the cost down to $80 a month, and you can cancel at any time, but until you tell us otherwise, we keep shipping you kits. And that's at $80 a month, again, shipping is included. And then um, if you prepay for a year, um, you get it for $70 a month. So for $840, you'll get a kit shipped to you monthly. And then on top of that, we'll ship uh, a, a, a six pack of Stotzel 
uh, glassware to you as our little uh, gift. Uh, oftentimes, you'll find that maybe not so much for the quote-unquote pros, but you know, not every consumer has six glasses, much less six matching glasses at home. And that's just something we sort of feel is a nice to do for people who are willing to commit with us over time. And that is a one-year prepaid um, uh, subscription rate. So all, we have three different types of subscriptions. Uh, one off, uh, which I guess isn't a subscription, but you know, a kick the tires, try it out. And then two different pricing, uh, monthly canceling at any time and recurring prepaid for a year. That's incredible. What a bargain for getting six amazing wines and the experience to get to do a blind taste. I mean, we, we try and do the whole like cover the bottle with a with a brown paper bag, but you can still tell bottle shape. So absolutely. absolutely. And and what we do, Sarah, is all the wines come in um, flint glass, 187 milliliter screw cap bottles. They're all sleeved blindly with Master of the World. Um, when you, you know, you you fill out the thing online, unless you're one of those people that likes to know the end of the movie before the movie is done. I mean, yes, you could rip off the sleeve and see the back label, which is, you know, all the legal stuff and identifies what the wine is. But most people are pretty good about that and want to go through the process before they do so. And then obviously, once you're done, you can rip all the labels off and have the bottles of wine, you know, with the Master of the World front label and the individual back labels showing to them. But it does keep it completely blind in that regard. You know, the interface online is a teaching moment for a lot of people, you know, uh, to learn about tasting as they go and do this. We have both a, a quick picks, which is, you know, for somebody who just wants to know what's the grape, what's the country, what's the region, what's the vintage. And then there's a more heavy uh, full workout, as we call it, that lets you go in there and deep dive into, you know, what does it look like? What does it smell and taste like? What are the acidity and tannin levels like? You know, what vintage, country, region within it, classification, et cetera, um, that uh, helps you helps you grow your knowledge and, you know, hone your blind tasting skills. Love that. So piggybacking off of something that you just said, you talked about legal issues, and I know you said that was your third point of resistance in creating this business, but it must be extremely difficult to navigate and have navigated all of the legal issues on shipping to certain states. Can you discuss why these regulations are in place, and do you see any of that changing in the near future? Oh my God, Sarah, if I knew the answer to that, I'd, I'd be rich. I'd be retired. I think nobody quite understands why we have 50 different countries out there with 50 different sets of laws. I always laugh to people that once we decide to ship to Europe and um, Asia and stuff like that, it's easier to ship there than it is to ship to, to Wyoming. Uh, it's crazy. Um, the reason why these laws uh, exist on the books is, is, is uh, that, that funny little period of prohibition that we had that essentially illegalized wine. When repeal happened and people could legally buy wine again, they created these various protections uh, to protect uh, the industry, to protect uh, people against themselves, to protect a number of other things, and added in a layer of distributors to do so. Um, and the distributors basically managed all of the back end of stuff like that, and they still do. And you know, distributors are an integral part of our culture uh, and getting wines to market and playing the, uh, the, the conduit between the individual producers around the world and us. Um, but over time, as both whether it's technology or people going to wineries on their own and wanting to ship wines home to themselves, et cetera. Um, the, the market has opened up allowing for people to purchase wines, um, either retail and have them shipped from wineries and have them shipped, whatever. 
But um, it's one thing to do it within your state. It's another thing to do it over state lines. And that's where it gets complicated because, you know, when wine is leaving one jurisdiction and entering another jurisdiction, people want to collect their taxes. People want to ensure that things are measured and monitored, et cetera. So literally every state has its own set of laws that one has to comply to in order to be able to do it. And not all 50 states do. There's a handful of states that, you know, ship a bottle of wine, go to jail. It just is not going to be and ever will be legalized. And some of them are very easy. And then some of them are, are more complex. Some of them are state monopolies and, and all of that. But what one needs to do, and this is true for a winery as it is for master the world, is that for each state you want to do business and you have to file and you have to do all of that in the state. And either you can do it on your own but it is time consuming. And if you submit the paperwork wrong, you know, it could be an absolute rabbit hole that nobody wants to go down. What most companies do is they hire uh, compliance firms that will work with them to take care of that. And you pay the compliance firm to file the paperwork and do so on your behalf to ensure you're compliant. And as states open up, you know, you can legally ship to them. And then there are varying companies uh, that you can work with who will, you know, uh, manage and monitor the taxes and all those other things. And then, you know, there are some companies that you can have do all your shipping for you. You can ship yourself, um, et cetera. But to say it's a labyrinth and uh, a maze would be an understatement. Definitely. All right. No, I, I think that how many, well, how many states are you currently able to ship to? We're in, I want to say, I don't, my, my, my business partner has my, uh, the exact numbers. I want to say we're in about 30 ish right now. We're, we're targeting 40 ish at the time. Um, and obviously, you know, that, that grows on a daily basis when you open your mail, we expect by the time we do our big PR push, uh, to be compliant everywhere that we need to be. Awesome. And how can people find Master the World? Yeah, the best thing they can do is go to our website. That would be the proverbial www.mtwwines.com. So www.mtwwines.com. That'll take you to the website, um, give you the opportunities to uh, learn about more about us, learn a little bit about our process, um, subscribe if they would like test, you know, test one kit out if they'd like to do it. And over time, you know, that site's getting more robust. Um, and we'll be adding more, more and more stuff in blogs, educational material. But, uh, right now I'm just keep trying to keep my nose above the waterline. <laughs> you're not busy at all. <laughs> no, I, th everything that you're doing is, is incredible. And I actually want to touch on this a little bit and I'll, put, I'll also put the website in the description of the podcast, but on Thank top you. of this huge project that you've been working on for five and a half years. You're also an award-winning author and have written a few amazing books regarding food and wine pairing. How do you approach food and wine pairing and what are some of your all-time favorites? To kind yeah. Of Thank you. Thank you for asking. Um, no, food and wine. I mean, I come obviously from the kitchen. Well, maybe don't, people don't know, but I come from the kitchen first. Um, uh, I, I, I cut my teeth uh, in a few kitchens in, in uh, France and in Napa Valley and Berkeley and, and all that before we opened up square one. And so I come from a food first uh, mentality, uh, which means that, you know, when you're cooking, and you're tasting a sauce or a condiment or, or, or a dish or whatever, you know, your knee-jerk reaction is to ask yourself, is the balance correct? Can I taste the ginger? Uh, when I nap that over a piece of meat, will it be balanced with, uh, with all those things? And the same set of synapses that essentially um, allow you to, to cook and taste and adjust 
um, are the same set of synapses you taste with a wine and you go, you know, is it balanced? Is the tannin to oak to alcohol to acidity to sugar ratio appropriate for this wine? Is it clunky? Is it cloying? Is it whatever? So a lot of the same language, if you will, is uh, is used in terms of how you um, incorporate, uh, evaluate, etc. Um, what I what, but for most people, there are like two separate languages. There's the language of food and the language of wine, and the people who are very good in food are often really good in food, but feel um, uncomfortable in wine. And a lot of people that are extremely strong in wine don't feel like food's their strongest set. So when I um, actually went out there to um, to write my first book, I, I really wanted to, rather than um, just add to the um, community of cookbooks out there that tip their hat to wine, I really wanted to write wine books that tip their hat to food, which so both Perfect Pairings and its sequel, Daring Pairings, um, are really about that. So um, they're essentially based on a number of grapes. Perfect Pairings focuses on six white, six red, sparkling wine and dessert wine. Daring Pairings being on 36 different grapes uh, that are more uh, daring, if you will, than the sort of Merlots, uh, Pinot Noirs, Chardonnays and Sauvignon Blancs that are in the first book. And after you know doing some relatively um, rich deep diving into explaining wine to people. So really, this is a great book if you don't know, because you'll learn as much about wine as you will about pairing uh, by reading the chapters that are in the book. I then take a look at each uh, each grape and each wine and, and look at how they match together. But your question about philosophy uh, is really is really an important one because, you know, there's either the very flip world of enjoy what you want with whatever you want. And, you know, that's great when it works, but oftentimes it doesn't. You don't really understand why it didn't work. There's the stuff that's overly prescriptive, which tells you to try and find, you know, the nuance of bay leaf, olive and asparagus in the wine and match it to a dish that carries the same flavor profile and everything in between. So I wanted to do something that was very practical, uh, that that allowed people to uh, be empowered, that gave people a little bit of direction and guideline without being prescriptive about what they were doing. And what I really do is I break wine down. Uh, as I taste it into um, just basic elements, basic building blocks. And they can be applied whether it's a red wine or a white wine, um, a dessert wine or a fortified wine, whether it's French, Californian, Italian, or whatever, which is to say that, you know, when we approach a wine, we look at it, we smell it, we taste it. I then tell people to add on one more component, which is to map it. And what the mapping is, is looking at how it's going to work with respect to pairing it with food, which means that each individual wine, like each individual snowflake or each individual fingerprint, car- uh, carries its own metric of the, of the following, its own level of acidity, its own level of alcohol, its own level of tannin, its own level of oak, and its own level of sugar. And the grape doesn't matter. What really matters is how much of those five key elements do the wines carry. And um, from zero to 10, the absence to abundance thereof, you should be able to, with practice over time, and I give some examples in, in the books on how to do it, you should be able to metrically quantify for your palate what is a zero and what is a 10, right? So if I gave you a glass of water, gave you a glass of water and squeezed lemon into it, and then gave you a glass of lemon that was only, or a glass that was purely lemon juice, and the water was a zero and the lemon juice was a 10, and then everything else in between was a two through a nine. Over time with wine, you could taste a wine that was essentially liquid electricity and one that was so acid deficient that it, it, it was flabby and start to make that scale for yourself. You can do that with sugar. You can do that with the presence of oak. 
You could do that with the level of tannin in a wine, and obviously you can do that with the weight and body of alcohol. So I actually teach people to map the wines, and then I explain in both books, obviously the, the sequel being more of a reiteration of the points that we established in the first book, and show people what the extremes of that means. When you have a lot of alcohol versus low alcohol, what does that mean to food? When you have a lot of oak versus a little bit of oak, what does that mean to food? Ditto, ditto, ditto. And then as we go through the varieties, I identify styles of wine that will be different and variant within those and talk about the pairings along the way and then match recipes to them. So it really is, um, it's establishing a philosophy. Then what I do for the food um, is basically say, it doesn't have five keys like wines do, but it does have three keys. And those three keys are the ingredient or ingredients, right? The way in which those ingredients are uh, prepared or treated. And then ultimately, whether uh, a dish has a sauce or a condiment or whatever. And then identifying how to prioritize within a dish, what is the priority, and then matching the priority of the food against the five keys of the wine to create pretty seamless matches along the way. That's brilliant. And that's such a good digestible way to break it down to every level. Thank so you. then with with your traditional pairings being like that, and then you wrote daring pairings also, what, mm-hmm. what were some of the strangest food and wine pairings that you've had that wouldn't seem intuitive that would pair well, but turned out amazing? Oh, there's, 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 there's one encounters so many. I, I, unfortunately, I'm not really great at writing all those things down as they are having my aha moments. But I will tell you one that that uh, that stuck out to me, and it, it, it literally to the day is branded here because I am a um, absolute gargantuan fan of cheese. I don't know if you are, but you know, I I, I find the category of cheese between animals and styles and rinds and washes and all that to be extraordinary as you travel the world and cheese like wine you know, is a product of place. It's a product of, of the milk of the animal, the time of the year, all those other good things. And I could literally, you know, give it all up tomorrow and probably be a cheesemonger and, and be happy for the rest of my life. So I'm always interested in pe- pairing cheeses and wines and things like that. But simply saying wine and cheese is a bit flip because there's so many styles of wine and so many styles of cheese. So um, one year, uh, several years back, I was invited to be um, a participant on the American Cheese Federation's annual conference that they did. And my topic was obviously pairing wine and cheese, which was great. And so they said, well, here are the wines that you have to pick from. You know, here are the award-winning cheeses for the year, da-da-da. And we, so I put together like a grid and a, you know, a cheese plate and some wines that were there. And what I realized is that the wines that they had and the wines that um, I wanted were very divergent. And, um, you know, I picked a couple things and picked some cheeses around them that were, you know, for lack of better words, safe or, or t- classic and proven. But I really wanted to show, um, you know, my um, feeling and affinity. And I spend more time talking about cheese and wine pairings, actually, in daring pairings than I do in perfect pairings. But I felt very strongly that, you know, uh, that, that I really wanted to show people, you know, non-traditional stuff. And most people, you know, eat cheese at the end of the meal. The color of the wine on the table is usually red. And more often than not, they're not happy because so many of those red wines don't work with the cheeses that they have. You need to pick the cheeses appropriate to the wine, which is why I've always believed that, you know, restaurants and places that offer cheese and wine together should have cheese selections for white wine, cheese selections for red wine, and cheese selections for sparkling and or dessert wines and not 
mix them all together and expect one wine to bridge everything because it simply doesn't work. White wines, as a rule, tend to actually have more affinity as a dry style than red wines do, which is, again, pretty counterintuitive. Well, they had no white wines. They only had reds and dessert wines. So they said, well, we have these. And so I picked a wine, which was a Viognier, thoroughly expecting that here's a, you know, a wine that's heavy in texture, really strong in flavor, not always highly uh, high enough in acid and all that. And I said, okay, well, it's the only white wine I got. I'm going to go with it. And so I did a Viognier pairing with a bunch of the wines, reds and sparklings and desserts and all that. And lo and behold, if um, the Viognier wasn't the preferred wine of choice by not only everyone in the audience, but myself as well, too, which I think more importantly to what you're saying is that, you know, never, you know, there are some absolute, you know, uh, what would you call them? Fork in the electric socket maneuvers that, you know, all you have to do is do them once and you will never do them again. You know, whether it's a super strong piece of fish and a tannic red wine or, you know, a really sweet dessert and a dessert wine that's not sweet enough or something like that. But so much of the other elements of it are, you know, are, 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 are tried and true wisdom taking the advice of other people. But I think what's most important to you is, is keeping an open mind and, um, you know, being prepared to pivot if you need to, but sometimes you'll find that things don't work really do. And things that you thought were going to work seamlessly really didn't. That's incredible. I'm going to have to try that with Viognier. I haven't, um, I always get the the coolest, uh, pairing tips on here. I had a guest that said, eat a raw oyster and then pour a little bit of Madeira in it and then drink the Madeira from the raw oyster shell. Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. It's just the strangest things, but the most amazing things. So I, I'm definitely going to give that a try. So I'm also fascinated with your expertise in South American wines. I've heard that certain countries like Argentina, they thought that they were bringing in a certain Bordeaux varietal, but ended up with Malbec, which ended up being amazing. But can you share the backstory behind the development of wine in Argentina and other countries like Chile and Brazil? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously that's a whole topic in and of itself, but um, the story of wine in South America is a, is a very interesting one. Grapes are not native to the continent. Um, grapes were brought down, came in in two ways, um, both through uh, the Spanish. The first was obviously um, not as pleasant. That was uh, when the conquistadors found themselves on their way down from what we now know of as sort of Mexico and, and California, but mostly Mexico and, and, and basically conquered uh, Central and South America and, and got uh, pushed back uh, at the Biobio River by the Mapuches in uh, Chile and by other uh, various tribes in Argentina and stuff like that as they hit the far south, but basically brought grapes with them uh, as they established their um, missions and established their um uh, people living there, you know, wine was a staple and all that, and they would make wine there. And then obviously, as they started to conquer, um, people from Spain started coming over, missionaries started coming over, the clergy started to come over, and obviously you needed wine for the church as well, too. So it was this confluence of things that brought over initially uh, European, uh, non, well, European grapes and the fact that they were Spanish, what they call Criolla grapes that, that came over primarily from the Canary Islands and other islands, but the grapes that would be most famous to people today would be what we know is, is the Mission grape in California, which is also called Listan Prieto. In, in Spain, it's called Pais. Uh, in uh, Chile, it's called Criola, Criola Chica in Argentina, etc. But Torrentel or Torrentes would be another one. Various strains of Muscat would be others. But vinifera grapes came over 
uh, to the continent by by way of uh, Chile primarily um, in the gosh in the back end of the uh, primarily well, as early as the early part but primarily the middle and back end of the 19th century when um, the Chilean um, people who had done well in mining, primarily copper, but other precious metals as well too, uh, did what anybody did who would get rich back in the mid-1800s. They hopped on a boat and they went over to Europe and they visited Paris because everybody needs to go to Paris. And if you're going to be in France for a while, you go to a chateau and go to Bordeaux. And they thought, well, wouldn't this be nice? Let's do this here at home. So they, uh, they, they figured out ways to bring grapes and bring uh, local French winemaking and grape growing expertise over to Chile and uh, planted in the area that was closest to Santiago because there were no such thing as tanker trucks and things like that back then. And in an area that we now know of as Maipo and the Central Valley and sort of established uh, uh, a more European wine culture there uh, in due time. Um, those grapes um, found their way over uh, the hill uh, to to um, Argentina and to other places there um, by various, again, other missionaries and, and people like that back early. Uh, and then obviously the wine industry got big, much bigger in the, in the 1900s and stuff like that. But back then, you know, the grapes were, were primarily French, um, as you sort of suggested in your question to me. Um, Bordeaux was the area. And again, the people that were coming back were bringing Bordeaux grapes, red and white, um, and Bordeaux influence. So the first grapes that were planted were grapes like Cabernet Sauvignon. They were Merlot, although they sometimes they were Merlot and sometimes they weren't. They would discover, you know, years later that a grape they thought was Merlot was actually Carmenere. Uh, you had Malbec, you had Petit Verdot, etc. And then you had, of course, Semillon and Sauvignon Blanc. And the reason why Chile to the day is sort of grounded in, in Sauvignon Blanc for white and Cabernet for Reds goes back to these uh, this historic times. Uh, then, of course, you know you hop the hill, and Malbec was the grape that seemed to take its place uh, best in uh, Argentina and was grown most successfully. And then, you know, years later, the uh, foresight of Nicolas Catena to sort of identify the strains and all that built what was going on there. Uh, you know, Carmenere became famous when the Chileans realized that they didn't have Merlot, but Carmenere was a big grape back then. And Carmenere, if you think of the time pre-Phylloxera when those grapes came over uh, to Chile from uh, from Bordeaux, that was all pre-Phylloxera material. So Carmenere was a much more important grape pre-Phylloxera than it was today. So they had a preponderance of that, etc. Now, in other places like Brazil and Uruguay and, 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 things, and places like that, it came in in a different way. So rather than it coming in through the French and all that, it came in through the Italians, through the Germans, etc. And those areas were, were essentially uh, settled uh, by primarily Italians, primarily Northern Italians, and other people who were escaping poverty in very difficult situations uh, at the turn of, uh, of the century, the turn of the, the um, end of the 20th century. And um, they got on boats. The boats said America. Some of those boats went to Ellis Island, as we all know. Some of those boats went to Montevideo. Some went to Buenos Aires, etc. And over time, as the people settled into their areas, you know, they brought they brought their foodstuffs with them and they, they grew grapes and all those other things. Well, the initial grapes that they grew didn't do so well. Uh, the climates were not particularly hospitable uh, to that. So um, what happened over time was a, uh, a communication was established between brothers and sisters on the north and south side of the equator. And what the Italian merchants quickly shared from North America to South was that they had grapes that were native, that they found in the East Coast that were actually doing quite well. And not only did they produce on a regular basis, 
um, and they were more disease tolerant to extremes of temperature, but you could also make raisins out of them, you could make jelly out of them, you could make jam out of them, etc. And it made much more sense to have those grapes. So those grapes found them, went them their way down to, uh, to uh, Brazil and to Uruguay uh, primarily and became the backbone of those industries until, you know, not that long ago when vinifera sort of in a modern day uh, came in and became more of the backbone of those areas too. So they're two very different paths uh, to wine. Uh, to the day, um, you know, Argentinians are still really the largest producers and largest consumers of wine there, although their per capita has uh, dropped uh, for, you know, precipitously as um, as other beverages have made their way. You know, they didn't have Red Bull back in the day. You know, they didn't have scotch and Coca-Cola and stuff like that. And frankly, in the earliest of times, you know, it was healthier, fr- honestly, to drink the wine than to drink the water. So you look back at documents and it shows, you know, how much wine people consumed. It was outrageously high. And then many other parts of South America sort of dip down. So Uruguayans per capita drink a lot of wine, but there's, you know, less than 4 million people there. Chileans, you know, drink a a decent amount of wine, but they export roughly 70% plus of what they drink. Brazilians don't drink hardly anything. They drink less than we do here per capita and other countries less and less so. So, you know, um, it's a whole different culture. It's a whole different world. You know, I, I just have, you know, fallen in love with it culturally and from a Uh, a wine standpoint. And, you know, if you look at it by the sheer volume of countries, you know, I mean, 10 countries produce wine down there. That makes it the second most important continent for wine in the world after Europe, you know, because we're just a singular country along with, you know, Mexico and Canada here in the United States. And Australia is one country and the other ones are just small relative to their continents. Um, But so more and more it's becoming interesting. And what's become most interesting of late, Sarah, is that people are rediscovering their roots. So, you know, how much more great Cabernet and Chardonnay does the world need? Well, a few bottles here and there are cool, but rediscovering, you know, the mission grape, rediscovering these initial and, you know, essentially native grapes to these countries is cool. Or looking at other grapes around the world, you know, the Portuguese um, have uh, a strong history with Brazil and actually Portuguese grapes have made their way over, you know, the last uh, you know, half century or so and are, are doing quite well over there. So it's a, it, it's very much a work in progress um, and one that's evolving over time, but one that I personally uh, found fascinating enough to write a book about it. Wow. Now you're, you have such a plethora of knowledge about it. I find it so fascinating. And when it, you mentioned a few times Uruguay. Um, one great varietal that my husband and I are really enjoying is Tanat. And it's obviously an extremely big wine. I've heard some producers use a process called micro oxygenation. Can you, can you elaborate on that process? And do you think that too much manipulation or is it essential for the certain grape varietals? Yeah, no, Mike, that's a, it's a very good question. And one that is, you know, you can't have a conversation about Tanat without having a conversation about micro-oxygenation. Um, the characteristic of, or the process of micro-oxygenation was in fact um, invented in France uh, in the areas where, where, where the wines were made for the purpose specifically of softening and making those wines more um, uh, drinkable, if you will. Because to your point, the word Tanat derives its name from the word tannin, and the wines are um, potentially very mean if the tannins aren't treated correctly. 
Um, they, in Uruguay, Tanat is the signature grape that's there. And this goes back to both the Southwestern French and Basque cultures that form um, the bastion of uh, immigration that, that, that came to that country. Again, you know, the whole immigration patterns of all of South America are different as you move by country and by region there. So the Basques were an essential and the Southwestern French were essential in doing that. And they brought uh, the grape over there, uh, which they call Hariag after uh, Pascal uh, Hariag, who brought the grape over, was responsible for propagating it. Um, what they found in um, Uruguay, however, Sarah, is that, that, that Tanat does not perform the same as it does in France. And uh, while uh, if if handled incorrectly, you can produce wines that are as mean as they can be in their native land. Um, if you practice the right um, uh, practices in the vineyard, if you don't overstretch the yields, if you open up the canopies to a- allow for full ripeness and phenolic development in the grapes, if you manage the tannins well in the winery, if you if you they found cold soaking helps polymer- polymerize the tannins in in, in ways, etc that that in and of itself works really well. And that they did, as you can imagine, obviously, lots of experiments with micro-oxygenation uh, early on. And they found that it just didn't do much for them. And obviously, it's a big undertaking to do it. And they found that that um, they could do enough um, manually working the wines in the vineyard, uh, through the vines, through the canopy, um, through yield management, and then through, you know, green green uh, harvesting, et cetera. And then in the winery by various regimens of, of cold soaking, pre-fermentation, you know, various regimens of post-fermentation maceration, et cetera, et cetera, that they could get uh, tannin management there the way they wanted it without having to result to micro-oxygenation, which is, I don't think, a bad thing necessarily, but it really depends on the fruit you have and the wines that you have, and it really just doesn't make that much sense. I'm frankly not aware, and I've been down to Uruguay multiple times, of anybody who on a regular basis is using micro-oxygenation, and honestly, Sarah, if they are, they're using it for other varieties, you know, more Cabernet and stuff like that than they are for their Tanat. Interesting. Can you explain what that process is like for micro-oxygenation? What, what do they actually do to the, the wine? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. What micro-oxygenation, and this can be done either pre or during or post-fermentation, so you can do it whenever you want. But what it essentially does is it inserts um, a, uh, a, a, a tube, uh, something into the wine uh, or the must, which can actually in very minuscule um, amounts, percolate oxygen into the wine at various stages to soften um, and uh, perform uh, perform in ways that help the, the, the tannins soften and bond together in such a way that it minimizes the grittiness and the bitterness in the wine. Now, different people will tell you that it's best to do it you know, during fermentation, other people will tell you that best to do it after fermentation or whatever, but it's sort of the wine equivalent of, um, you know, if you have like a, a fish tank and you have one of those little uh, aeration stones that you put at the bottom of your fish tank to ensure your fish get enough air introduced into the water, etc. It's sort of the wine equivalent yeah. of introducing an aeration stone into the, uh, into the wine to allow um, very small, hence micro-oxygenation amounts of oxygen into the wine for the purpose of softening up the tannic uh, reaction and tannic structure. Well, that's a great analogy. Thank you. 
Um, so I, I know that you are a very busy guy and I thank you so much for, for your time. I guess just one last question. Um, do you have any, any insight into some hidden gems or up and coming regions in South America that maybe most people aren't familiar with? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, th I think that, um, you know, most people, when you say South America, they default into Chile and Argentina. And even within that, their, their profile of what they are aware of is relatively limited. So within those countries, I would encourage people to do two things. Number one, um, explore regions that are not necessarily the normal regions. So, you know, most wine comes from Mendoza in Argentina. It's the largest and, and arguably the most important area, certainly most significant area there. But there are other regions from Patagonia in the south to Salta and Jujuy in the north that are worth exploration. The other thing is to explore grapes that are off the beaten path. So, you know, most people know Malbec and Cabernet and, and Chardonnay, but there's, you know, other interesting grapes there, whether it's rediscovery of the indigenous grapes or, you know, people doing cool things with, uh, with um, you know, Bonard and Sangiovese that are worth checking out as well, too. Uh, in Chile, same thing. Uh, other areas outside of the, the central area are good, going as far north as... Uh, as a Coquimbo and Atacama in the north, going as far south as Osorno, Austral, and other parts of Patagonia in the south, and once again exploring non-Bordelais grapes. So whether it's Mediterranean grapes or indigenous grapes, are terrific. I would I would um, venture to guess that most people are probably relatively unfamiliar with Uruguay and Brazil. So simply trying anything from those countries uh, is worth doing. Brazil, in particular, excels in sparkling wines of all shapes, sizes, and colors, and stuff like that. And I'd encourage uh, people to, to, to look there and then work your way into the table wines. In Uruguay, obviously, Tanat is their calling card and their entry and their greatest diversity, but they too are um, exploring new regions, whether it's Maldonado in the far east and new grapes like Albariño and, and things like that. Probably the areas that are most exciting and that are not on people's radar would be uh, Peru and Bolivia. Um, those are, th I think, the areas that are the, the next up-and-comers. Um, those are areas that are more known for distillates. Uh, Pisco in the case of, of uh, Peru, Singani in the case of Bolivia. But people are looking at not only using those grapes uh, for making table wine as opposed to distillate, but also incorporating other uh, more vinifera grapes into that. There's some really interesting co consulting projects that are going on down there. And usually when the key South American consultants, be it uh, Alfredo Hurtado uh, in Chile or Roberto de la Mota in uh, Argentina are kicking their tires in other countries. You know it's worth um, exploring a little bit to seeing what they're doing. Those would probably be the next two countries that I would look at. After that, it's, it's um, you know, there's some bits and pieces in Ecuador that are kind of interesting. There's some bits and pieces in Colombia, but I think that probably gives your uh, your listeners enough to go on if they can uh, trackle, tackle that, uh, that roadmap for, for a little bit. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. I'm really excited to to try all the amazing wines that you, well, one, you've just mentioned, and then the wines you've curated for Master the World. What an amazing concept. And like I said, just talking with friends about it last night, and they're so pumped about it. Well, and, and obviously, you know, one of the easiest and most uh, quickest delivery options is uh, here in California, where both you and I are. So uh, if you have listeners in California, I mean, obviously, we can ship out of out of state too, but uh, Californians can take advantage of number one. You know, you can depending on where you are, you can get your you can you know order your wine ground and get it within just a couple of days. Um, you might get it even the next day if you're up here in Northern California, but uh, it's very easy to do, and uh, it's of course our biggest market at this point in time. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Evan. This has been incredible. And I will be sure to include that uh, the website in the in the description of the podcast so listeners can easily find their find and go and register for their own kit of Master the World. Wonderful. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be on your, uh, your podcast, Sarah. I look forward to uh, chatting with you further. And um, thanks for the uh, lovely conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. Please hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on any future episodes. You can also follow us on Instagram at Everyday Food and Wine. And please also check out Full Circle Wine at fullcirclewine.com. You can join us on my personal Instagram weekly for live wine tastings at Sarah underscore Faraday, where we taste and rank wines as well as amazing pairing tips. Please join us for the next episode where I sit down with an award-winning filmmaker, Jason Wise, and discuss his critically acclaimed wine documentaries, Psalm, as well as Psalm TV, and the release of a special new project.